title of today's teaching is The Giving of the Son. The Giving of the Son. It's often referred to as the most popular verse in the Bible. Those of us who grew up in the faith learned this verse early on. It's a summation of the Christian message, the gospel, the good news. It's held up on signs at football games, baseball games. You see the field goal kicker kicking the ball through the goalposts, and there you'll see a sign of this verse. It's on billboards. There's even churches and ministries named after it. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. Even non-believers know this verse. Some of them have it memorized. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's a verse that we've heard over and over and over again. Those of us who have been in church for any time long, it's a verse that I want to cover today. Mostly the first half of the verse after finishing up the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I was praying, I was seeking the Lord. Lord, where do you want us to go now? And so this is what the Lord put on my heart. It seems the Lord keeps putting certain verses, certain topics, certain things on my heart. And so every time I'm like, okay, should we go through this book together? Should we go through that book together? He goes, here's another verse I want you to cover. Here's another topic. And so I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to speak the truth of God's word faithfully. And so this is where God has brought me today. And I've heard that Many of you, some of you, if not many, are going through um, studies throughout the week, verse-by-verse studies, whether it's, I think, Precepts or K. Arthur or just going through books of the Bible, which is really cool to hear. So keep that up, Lord willing. We'll do that as a church. But here's the direction where my plan is to go. Resurrection Sunday, Easter, whatever you call it. I talked to Leah about it. She said, do not say Easter. And so... I go, (laughs) you know, because when we think of Easter, we think of Easter bunnies and eggs and all that secular stuff, which isn't necessarily bad, right? But we want to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. That's three weeks away. So today I want to talk about the giving of the son. Next week, Lord willing, I want to talk about the testing of the son, the trying of the son, the temptation of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then I want to talk about the crucifixion of the son and what Jesus went through on the cross, culminating on Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of the Son. So Lord willing, that's going to be the next three weeks. Who knows what the Lord will do? Maybe he'll change my heart and mind, and we'll do something else. But that's where I'm at right now. So John 3.16, what's the context of John 3.16? John chapter 3, here's this religious man, Nicodemus. Some of you know the context. He's this scholar ruler of the Jews, teacher of the Jews, he's called. I was reading up about Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. At two years old, if you were in a Pharisee family, they'd put honey on a scroll and have you lick it so that you could taste and see that the Lord is good, so that you would remember that from a young age to love God's word. And then by age four, you started memorizing Leviticus. By age 12, You're memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 16 years old. Man, you need to know the Psalms and the prophets. These Pharisees knew the word of God. At least intellectually, they knew the word of God. And so here's this man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus. Does he go to him by day? 
does the text say in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? No, he visits him by night. That implies he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want his colleagues to see that he's visiting Jesus. It wouldn't look good if this man was to talk to Jesus during the day. He'd probably be chastised, ridiculed, if not kicked out completely, forced out of his highly coveted pharisaical leadership position. So he goes to him by night. He seems to be inquiring, seems to be searching. He seems to have an open heart. And before he's even able to get a question out, Jesus responds in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus just cuts straight to the chase. Nicodemus, you want to talk about my miracles? Yeah, Nicodemus, you, you believe that I'm from God. That's what Nicodemus says in verse 2. I'm here to tell you the greatest news, the news that you and every human being needs to know. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God later, he says, to enter the kingdom of God. I love how Jesus does that. He even does that with the woman at the well. I think it's in the next chapter. She wants to talk about water. She wants to talk about a well. He's talking about living water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about life transformation. Nicodemus, this is what you need, the Holy Spirit to come into your life, to transform you. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Wait, so I need to go into my mother's womb again? How's this going to work? That's Nicodemus' response. And Jesus rebukes him in verse 10 strongly. Aren't you're a teacher of the Jews? You're a scholar. You know the Old Testament law pretty much by heart. And you don't understand these things, Nicodemus. You don't understand that you must be born again. You must be transformed to enter the kingdom of God. Don't you know Ezekiel 36, 26, Nicodemus? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Don't you know these scriptures, Nicodemus, that talk about having a new heart? So Nicodemus didn't understand these things. Jesus continues to unpack the way of salvation. And he gives them a vivid picture of salvation from Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. Four verses, a short story found only in Numbers 21, 6 through 9, where it says the Lord sent fiery serpents to bite and kill the Israelites. I would teach on this verse at my old job, and I would say, who sent these fiery serpents? And then they'd look. I said, what does it say there in verse 6? The Lord sent fiery serpents. The Lord did this. The Lord brought judgment upon Israel because the context was We know they were grumbling. They were complaining. They were bitter. They were coming against Moses. Let's go back to Egypt. God said enough. He brought judgment upon them in many different ways. And in this text, he brings judgment upon them through fiery serpents. And the fiery serpents are biting them and they're dying. And so they cry out to Moses and they say, Moses, intercede for us. Call out to God for us. We're dying here. So Moses goes to God and God says, Put on a staff a bronze serpent. Lift up this serpent, and whoever looks lives. That's it. 
put a bronze serpent on a standard, lift it up. Whoever looks lives. And perhaps some of the people would say, yeah, but I know the law like the back of my hand. I believe in God. Look at all I've done for him. Look at all my good works. Does any of that matter in that moment? Look and live. That was the requirement. Are you going to trust the word of God? Are you going to trust God and his provision? Look and live. And so Jesus tells this story to Nicodemus, at least in a shorter form, and we see this in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Nicodemus, you know that story. This is a picture of salvation by faith. Sin causes death. Snake bites cause death. Faith in God and his word brings life. It's a picture of God's mercy and love. Did God have to provide a way? Moses could have interceded and God could have said, no, the snakes are going to continue to bite them and they're all going to die. They deserve it. They've sinned. The wages of sin is death. I'm bringing, down ju- I'm bringing down judgment. This is what they deserve. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I provided for them. I brought them out of Egypt. I've cared for them in so many ways. They've rejected me. Death. Instead, in his mercy, he provides a way of salvation. And it's a picture of how Jesus would be crucified. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, Jesus says, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that all who believe in him will be saved. Do you think Nicodemus got this picture? I mean, Nicodemus could have said the same things. I'm an expert in the law. I know the law. I've done many great things. I'm a teacher of Israel. I'm a righteous man, and Jesus is just tearing all that down. You must believe in the Son of God. You must believe in me. Just like they had to look, you must look to me to live. All your works are like filthy rags. Look to Jesus and live. You must be born again. So did Nick, do you think Nicodemus understood what Jesus was saying about I must be lifted up? Do you think it all clicked for him right there? And then he thought, he went away thinking, Jesus is going to be crucified on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. I don't believe so. I believe he trusted Jesus. I believe he was listening to Jesus with an open heart. I believe that the seed fell on good soil. I believe that he wanted to hear more and that he had faith in Jesus. Hopefully at some point, we only see Nicodemus two other times in the entire New Testament. He stands up for Jesus a couple chapters later. I was looking in church history to see if there was any other things outside the scripture that tell us about Nicodemus. There's, ask, there's actually a gospel of Nicodemus, an apocryphal work, which many scholars and commentators don't believe is accurate. So we can be hopeful. But who was at the foot of the cross? Who was there when Jesus died? It says in Isaiah 53, he was with a rich man in his death. And the scripture tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Nicodemus was also pretty wealthy. Pharisees came from wealthy families. 
Nicodemus was at the foot of the cross. Many of you know that. Him and Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus down off the cross. Nicodemus showed up with 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Most commentators don't believe it took 100 pounds of these precious ointments and fragrances to care for the body of the dead. Many believe this was a token of his love for Jesus, bringing 100 pounds of spices there to tenderly care for Jesus, wrap him up, and place him in this tomb. I personally believe that's when it clicked. I believe Nicodemus saw him lifted up, and he remembered that story. He remembered visiting Jesus by night as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. So the Son of Man will be lifted up. And I think he saw Jesus lifted up on that cross and thought, wow, that's salvation through what Jesus is doing for our sins, the sins of the whole world. Did every theological point make sense to him right then? I don't believe so. But the scripture says to the humble, God will continue to reveal himself. To those who have light, more light will be given. And so I believe that Nicodemus trusted in Jesus Christ and believed on Jesus Christ and showed it by bringing this hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe. So I believe Nicodemus was one of the whosoevers. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, rich and poor and red and yellow, black and white and slave or free and Greek and Jew, it doesn't matter who you are, if you believe in Jesus, you can be saved. So, for God so loved the world. I want to break down a little bit of these of this verse, these words. Scripture says that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. 1 John 4, 16. Agape, divine love. We even see it throughout the Old Testament in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Song of Solomon, all throughout the book, God's depicting his love as Solomon has love for his bride. Song of Solomon 2.4, he has brought me to his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, God tells Jeremiah to proclaim this to the people. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, you following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who devoured her became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. They had love back for him. They had agape love in return. They reciprocated the agape love that he had for them, and God was calling them back to that. Don't you remember when we, have that, when we had that love relationship? which is depicted all throughout the Old Testament in different forms and different ways. Even in Hosea, God takes this prophet Hosea to show his love for Israel and says, go after this immoral woman. Love her. Show her a divine love, just like I'm showing Israel a divine love. Even though they go astray, even though they seek after idols, even though they're selfish and grumblers and complainers, my hands are outstretched. I love you Israel, agape, divine love. It's all throughout the New Testament. 
John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him, agapao, and will come to him and make our abode with him. Romans 8, 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's a love that requires a response. It's not enough to just tell the world God loves you. That's just part of the message. And that's where the evangelical movement is going. God loves you. We love you. Have a blessed day. That'll send them right to hell. Sure, God loves them. We need to finish the verse. We need to finish the scriptures, the rest of the scriptures, the whole counsel of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. You must believe in him or you will perish. Psalm 2.12, do homage to the son. Some translations say kiss the son. It was a bowing down, kissing the hand. Do homage to the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's arms are outstretched to the world, but if you reject his love, if you continue to live for yourself, judgment is coming. And that's all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament as well. Some people will say, God's just a God of wrath in the Old Testament. Have they read Revelation? You see Noah's Ark. You see what happened to the world in Genesis. You see the devastation of Israel in the Old Testament. The Babylonian captivity. Atrocious things when you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and you hear about the Assyrians and what they did and you hear about what the Babylonians did. They gouged out the king's eyes. King Zedekiah, his kids were killed right in front of him. Then they gouged out his eyes and brought him into captivity. All because they would not bow to God to his word, to Jeremiah the prophet who was telling them to turn to God and live. So it requires a response. God's love requires a response. Believe in him and live, reject him and perish. That's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. Who is the world? Barnes commentary is helpful here. Quote, all mankind it does not mean any particular part of the world, but man as man, the race that has rebelled and that had deserved to die. He quotes John 6:33. for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. John 17:21. that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world cosmos may believe that you sent me that the world may believe that you sent me that's Jesus's prayer the Barnes commentary goes on to say it was for all the world he tasted death for everyone Hebrews 2 9 he died for all 2 Corinthians 5.15. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for our sins but for the sins of the whole world 1 John 2.2. The Clark Commentary states, The world was in a ruinous, condemned state, about to perish everlastingly, and was utterly without power to rescue itself from destruction. God, through the impulse of his eternal love, provided for its rescue and salvation by giving his son to die for it. God's agape love. 
his transcendent love, his divine love towards the world is shown in the giving of his son, the gift of salvation to the world, a gift of peace to the world who's at enmity with God. God as king looked out over his kingdom, and what did he see? Rebellion, anarchy, selfishness, hatred towards him. And yet what does he do? He sends his son into the world. That is his offer to the world. It's an olive branch to the world. It's an offer of peace, hope, salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Though the world deserves condemnation, they deserve wrath, all of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. We all deserve death, yet God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus picks up on this, and throughout the book of John, at least 40 times, it talks about the sending of the son, the giving of the son into the world. Let me just give you a couple of these verses. John 5, 36. The very works I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is pleading with the multitudes. He's pleading with his Jewish countrymen, these religious leaders. God sent me into the world. Believe in God, believe in me. They'd say, well, we do believe in God. And he would say, if you believe in God, you believe in me because the Father has sent me. I am in the Father, the Father is in me, Thomas. I and the Father are one, John chapter 10, verse 10. Before Abraham was born, I am, John 8, 58. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, John 1, 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. He has been with the Father from eternity. And this beautiful love relationship that we, perhaps for eternity, will try to comprehend, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had this plan from all eternity to bring salvation to the world. And Jesus said, I will willingly go. And so he proclaims this theme throughout the Gospel of John. John 5, 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom, set, whom he sent. You do not believe him whom he sent. Jesus continues to go back to this argument. If you believe in God, you'd believe in me. God sent me, John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John six fifty seven. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me, he shall also live because of me. John seven twenty nine. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. John 8, 42, I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. John eleven forty two, and I know that you hear me always. He's at the tomb of Lazarus. He's crying out to his father. I know you hear me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus wants them to believe that God sent him. So instead of just saying this prayer silently, he says it out loud and then says, come forth to show he's sent from God. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, 8, as he's praying for his disciples, praying to the Father, he says in John 17, 8, at the end of the verse, and they believed that you sent me. The disciples believed that Jesus was from God. John 17, 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. How could the apostles in the early church show that Jesus came down from heaven? How could they show that God gave Jesus to the world, that Jesus was sent as a form of salvation to the world? Answer, mirroring the agape love of the Father. Fervently, as Peter, I think it's in 1 Peter, says, fervently love one another from the heart. Agape. Striving for unity in the faith. That's how we show the world how much God loves them in sending them his son. That's what Jesus said in John 17, 23. I and them, you and me, perfected in unity that the world may know that you sent me. The more we're perfected in unity, loving each other, caring for each other, showing that divine love towards each other, people from different backgrounds with so many differences, so many things that we don't have in common outside of the Lord, many of us. I've mentioned this before. I think it was my mom who said, I don't know if I'd be friends with some people outside of Jesus because I'd ask her when I was going to Blessed Hope early on. And she's like, but in Jesus, we're like the closest friends. We're like family. And because I wasn't following the Lord like I should have at the time, I couldn't comprehend it. The more the triangle analogy, the more we get closer to God in our marriages, friendships, relationships, and in the church, the closer we get with each other. The more we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God and worshiping him and loving him, the more we come together as a church family, the more we love each other with his agape love. You've heard the word feast of charities, love feasts, King James Version, Feast of Charities. It's mentioned in Jude chapter 1, verse 12. Feast of Charities, love feast. This is what the early church did. Acts 2.42 through Acts 2.46. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. Continually. They were selling their possessions. They were selling their homes. They were giving to one another. Nobody was in need, the text says. The Holy Spirit was moving miraculously providing for them, healing them. And the world around was seeing this and the gospel was spreading rapidly and the fulfillment of John 17, 23 was happening right before their eyes. Perhaps the word of God's not spreading as rapidly as it should here or in America because the church isn't fulfilling John 17, 23 the way it should. So, Church tradition tells us that at these love feasts, at these feasts of charities, the wealthy would provide food. The poor would come. They wouldn't have anything. They'd make it in the door, and the wealthy would bless them. And so everyone was blessed. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The poor were blessed feasting. The wealthy were blessed because they could be God's hands and feet, and the church was united. 
that's God's heart for us so that the world may know that Jesus was sent from the Father. So who did God give? Not just a son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What does that mean? Monogenes is the Greek word. One and only son. One of a kind, literally monos, one of a class, genes, or from genos, the only of its kind. What do I think of from the Old Testament? What do you think of your only son? Take your only son. Genesis chapter 22, another typology. One in Numbers 21, here's another one, Genesis 22. Take your son, your only begotten son, Abraham. Take him up to Mount Moriah and offer him there for me. Make an offering, Abraham. Genesis 22, 2. It's the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. After the fall of Adam and Eve, here's the first time love is mentioned. And in the Greek Septuagint, it's agapetas from agape. Take your beloved son, Isaac. The divine-like love that you have for Isaac, Abraham, which is a picture of my divine-like love for the world and for my son, Jesus, take him to Mount Moriah. Oh, which, by the way, Mount Moriah is modern-day Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 3.1 tells us that's where Solomon built the temple, Mount Moriah, where for thousands of years, or at least a thousand years, sheep and animals would be slaughtered day after day, year after year, on this mountaintop. Amazing. So Abraham, take your son up to this mountain. Sacrifice him. Offer him. Give him up. It's a picture. There's many pictures in this text. Genesis 22.3 tells us how they rode into Moriah. Isaac, Abraham, rode in on a donkey. Hmm, that's interesting. How did Jesus ride into Jerusalem before his death? On a donkey. Now, that's just a coincidence. When did Abraham arrive on this mountain with Isaac? When he was typologically resurrected? Because if you know the story, if you don't, I'm sorry to break it to you, but Isaac wasn't offered up, right? But Hebrews chapter 11 verse 9 tells us that he was typologically, 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 I don't know. That's how he was resurrected as if it were. When did Abraham bring him up to the mountain? The text says on the third day. Genesis 22, 4. He received him back as a resurrected son on the third day. That's just coincidence. Who carried the wood up to the mountaintop, the offering? Isaac. Genesis 22, 6. Abraham is a picture of God the Father and his love for the world. Remember, Isaac is a picture of Jesus. Isaac was miraculously born. Jesus was miraculously born, born of a virgin. Sarah was old and laughed when an angel, angel told her that she would have a son. But there's more. Isaac started putting the pieces together. He didn't know early on that he was going to be the sacrifice. I don't believe so. 
I believe Abraham told him, we're going to go make an offering to the Lord. And that's what Jewish people did. You brought a goat or a lamb or an animal and you sacrificed the animal to the Lord. So they're walking up to this mountain. Isaac's got the wood on his back. They're getting close. Where's the lamb? Where is the sacrifice, Abraham? Listen to what Isaac says in Genesis 22, 7. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responds, my son, God will provide the lamb. But here he is, I believe, seeing what's about to happen. Most scholars believe he's 20, 30 years old, perhaps. He's not 10 years old. He's not five years old. He's a grown man. And he knows what's about to happen. And he's crying out to his father, though he's willingly continued to step forward with his wood on his back. They're almost to the place and the time of the offering. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking over at that Jerusalem hill, the same hill that this was taking place on, realizing that the time was just about there cries out in Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It just keeps, there's more and more and more. The more you unpack the Bible, the more beautiful it is. As I was putting this together, I was almost, I was basically crying at my desk. You, if you show this to a Jewish person and they don't bow down right there, and worship the Lord and believe in Jesus, man, they have a stony heart. The Bible is awesome. The more we read it and study it and learn about God, it's interwoven all throughout of his divine love, his mercy, his compassion for the world. Pictures all throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, two that I mentioned today. Isaac willingly gives himself, Genesis 2, 22, 9. He willingly, it says, he was bound and laid on the wood. No response given. It doesn't say he argued with his dad. It doesn't say he fought Abraham. It doesn't say he tried to get up and run. It just says he was bound and laid on the wood. Just as Jesus willingly was bound and laid on the cross and lifted up for the sins of the world. If you don't love typology, then I don't know what to tell you. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And so we know how the story ends in Genesis 22. Abraham lifts that knife up. He goes to sacrifice his son. The angel calls out from heaven, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham, you were willing to give your son for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So Abraham lifted his eyes. Okay, I'm not going to sacrifice my son. What will I sacrifice? Behold him, a ram, caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went over, took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And we're told in the text, as it is said to this day, we believe as Moses was writing this down, perhaps hundreds of years later, it was still said in that day, 
in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. The Jews looked to that mountain and would say, in this mountain it will be provided. Amazing. 2,000 years later, God provided. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said as, as Jesus came on the scene. The Lamb of God. Blameless, sinless, perfect. The sacrifice for the world has been provided. He was willingly placed on the cross, lifted up, and the scripture says that he drew all men to himself. So the doors of the ark are open. Noah, the scripture tells us, was a preacher of righteousness. Turn to the Lord and live. Get on the ark. Yet everyone in his day perished in the flood, all but eight. And the ark is a type and shadow of Jesus. They're all over the place, right? And today that's the message for the world. The doors of the ark are open. It's time to run to Jesus and live. Look to Jesus and live. Now who sends that message to the world? John chapter 20, verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you also. Now we're sent. We're the hands and feet. We're the body of Christ. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's been crucified. He's been buried, rose on the third day, and ascended into heaven. He's ruling and reigning. Who gets the message out now to the world? We do. He sends us. So the practical application part of the message, are we doing that? Are we getting the message out? Are we giving our lives for the gospel? So whoever believes in him, as I mentioned, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor, red and yellow, black and white, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, we are to go out and share the message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. The goal is if you didn't have that verse memorized, now you do. So I wasn't, I was debating whether to share this last part of the message, but it's the reason why this verse has been on my heart. I've been at the school throughout the week. I use my school as part of different examples to share with you guys, part of my preaching. And early on in the week, I was thinking through John 3.16. As I'm at the school walking around watching kids for 90 minutes on a freezing cold playground, at times snow's falling down and I'm out there, and I'm like, oh Lord, it's cold. And I got to waste 90 minutes. Give me some scriptures. Help me to memorize scripture. I'm out there preaching. I'm, I'm just like, the kids are looking at me. I'm telling you. They're like, this person is crazy. And I'm like, I want to seek the Lord. So that's what I do. I'm trying to reach these kids for the Lord. I've been, I brought a coin with me. And I mentioned a coin message perhaps a couple months ago. And I never did find that coin. But I found another coin. And it's a coin with Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, and the, f the armor of God. And there's a picture of a soldier on this coin. And so I'll get the coin out and I'll look at it and the first and second, some of the younger kids 
Oh, cool, shiny coin, let me see. What's on this coin? What is that? Why is there a soldier? Cool, glad you asked. Let's talk about the armor of God. Let's talk about the Bible. And so it's like a little gateway to share the Lord with them. And so I've been doing that lately. But the other day I was meditating on John 3.16 and I was thinking for some reason about when Tim Tebow put John 3.16. Those of you who know football know that when Tim Tebow was in college, he put John 3.16 on his eye black during a college football game. And millions of people looked up John 3.16 after the game. I was thinking about this at the school going, man, it's really cool how he stood up for the Lord. Whether you think he was a great quarterback or not or think that's beside the point of this message. I respected him and do that he at least, like many supposed Christian athletes, don't do. They're afraid to share the name of Jesus. They're afraid to pray. At least he did these things in the midst of being ridiculed and mocked. So, three years after the day that he wore John 3.16 on his eye black, he played the Pittsburgh Steelers in an NFL playoff game. And I remembered this article from January 8th, 2012, posted on ESPN. You can Google it. It's still there. The article states, three years to the date, and by the way, the article's titled, Tebow Phenomenon Gets Eerie. Three years to the date that he caused millions of football fans to Google John 3.16, Tebow played his first NFL playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. How many yards did Tim Tebow throw that game? 316. How many yards per completion did he average? 31.6. The Steelers finished the game with a time of possession 31 minutes and 6 seconds. The CBS final quarter hour overnight ratings were 31.6. And another article, I didn't see it in this one, said his average yards per carry were 3.16 yards. One NFL executive heard the story and said, I'm converting. I don't know if that was true or not, if it was joking, but that's quite amazing. Three years after, to the day, 316. 316, 316. After that game, over 90 million people Googled John 316. Because, and it's a beautiful story, just because a guy was willing to share his faith, wear a scripture. I don't know exactly where he's at. I don't know his theology. But that's an awesome story about he just wore John 3.16. Some of us are like, I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know the Greek. I don't know the Hebrew. I don't know all these typologies. And believe it or not, even people that have been studying the word for years still get nervous at times sharing the gospel. But it could be as simple as just handing out a gospel track, just putting John 3.16 on your eye black, just being faithful to the Lord. Well, so I thought about this story at work and then I thought nothing of it until a couple hours later when I was sitting in my car and I turn on the Christian radio and I was sitting at my office thinking about this this morning as well and was tearing up and the lady the host whoever it was said happy John 316 day I said what March 16th 2023 316 
And I was like, oh, my goodness. Okay, Lord, I hear you. I get it. I got my message for Sunday. God's amazing. He's awesome. And I don't know, there's coincidences in life, and then there's things like that that you're just like, that's crazy, that I was thinking about all those things, and it was on John it was on 316, John 316 day. And my mother-in-law, Lisa, texted me later that night, happy John 316 day. And it was like it just kept coming in. And I was like, wow, amazing. God is good. He's an awesome God. He's a compassionate God. And he's given us and given the world his son. May we worship him and share him with everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Oh, Lord, it's amazing. Lord, we miss so many things because we're distracted in so many ways. Life can be hard at times, Lord. We go through trials. We go through temptations. Our cup is empty, Lord, at times. Pray that you would fill it, Lord. Fill it with your word. When we're tempted to go through things that won't fulfill, Lord, as your word calls them broken cisterns, Lord, fill us with the living water. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus said, let him come and drink. So, Lord, we come to you today. We come to you, Jesus, to drink from the living water, that the Holy Spirit would continue to fill us and empower us to know you, to know your word. And as your word says, you make known to us the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. May we be satisfied in you, Lord, above all else. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.